Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance on Global Health Security. I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center, where I direct our work on immunizations and HIV-AIDS. It's my pleasure to speak today with David Kramer, Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute at the Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, Texas. And there he oversees the Institute's work on a broad range of issues, such as economic growth, immigration, women's advancement, confronting authoritarian regimes, and global health. Now, David has worked in the field of democracy, human rights, and public policy for more than two decades. He served as an assistant secretary for democracy, human rights, and labor at the State Department during the Bush administration, was the president of Freedom House, and was a senior transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund. We first met about 20 years ago when David was working for the Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs, and I was an International Affairs Fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations, where I was placed at the department really to begin to learn more about the intersection of global health and foreign policy. David, it's great to see you again, and welcome to the podcast. Catherine, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. And um, I should say that um, I started my career in D.C. at CSIS let's just say a long time ago. And so it's great to be with you here today. Probably before there was even a global health policy center. Before so there it's... were iPhones, uh, <laughs> before a lot of things, electricity even. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you as a member of the Bipartisan Alliance as well. But let's start with what was happening 20 years ago during the summer of 2003. President Bush had announced PEPFAR a few months earlier and as plans got underway to organize the Office of the Global AIDS Coordinator, you were serving as a senior advisor at the State Department, and you were really helping to envision and establish some of those new activities. So I wanted to ask you, you know, from your perspective at State, working in that context, what was it like really taking this vision that President Bush had outlined in the State of the Union address, and then really working with the department and the interagency to make that vision a reality? You know, at the time, there were a lot of different agencies working on, on HIV and particularly around prevention of mother-to-child transmission. You had USAID, CDC, Labor, Peace Corps, uh, Department of Defense, and even at State, there were a lot of different offices that had something to say about HIV. And so what was it like as things got organized? What went smoothly, and what were some of the greatest challenges that you and your colleagues were, were facing at that Well, Catherine, if I can, let me step back even a little further. Um, And and to be clear, I was a bit player in this whole 
uh, process in the launch of, of PEPFAR. But it was early in President Bush's administration when then the National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice and Secretary of State Powell came to President Bush and said that the African continent was in crisis, that millions of Africans were dying of HIV AIDS, that uh, millions more were infected. It was being passed on to infants. We saw the emergence of millions of orphans in, in Africa. Life expectancy on the continent was plummeting in many places. And so President Bush then tasked his team to come up with an emergency plan, a, a big plan. He wanted something on a grand scale that would address what was both a humanitarian crisis, but also a national security crisis, because for those uh, to whom much is given, much is required. And that was a philosophy President Bush believed in deeply. And so he felt that we had a compassionate obligation to respond where we could help and make a difference. And so on that basis alone, he felt there was something that the United States can and must do. But there was also a national security component to this. And that was that as a result of those getting infected and dying of HIV AIDS, a lot of African countries were becoming weaker, unstable, and more prone to extremist forces. And so if nothing were done to try to stabilize these countries by addressing this massive public health uh, crisis, then we would face more national security problems on the African continent and elsewhere. And it wouldn't be good for anyone on the continent, needless to say. So it was on that basis that he announced at his January 2003 State of the Union speech uh, his plan for emergency age relief. And the Congress, in very quick fashion, on a huge bipartisan basis, bicameral basis, then approved and passed legislation in May of 2003, so just a few months after his announcement at the State of the Union, which had been a pretty well-guarded secret, uh, the, the announcement of this plan. And then in May, it's passage, and he signed it in, into law. And then, as you rightly point out, at the State Department, a number of us were then tasked with putting this plan together because the person in charge of the PEPFAR program was going to be based at the State Department. And it was important that that individual have ambassadorial rank, uh, that he or she would report to the Secretary of State directly in order to cut through any bureaucratic hurdles that may be posed, and that the State Department in this office, the uh, Office of Global AIDS Coordinator, would be in charge, as you said, of all the agencies and bureaus, departments that were working on, on global health issues. And so it meant uh, corralling USAID, CDC, the Pentagon, and others who were working on this and so over the course of 2003, and then I moved into a different position toward the end of that year at the State Department, plans were, were being laid to create this office to make sure the structure was in place. Uh, the Bureau of Oceans, Environment and Science, uh, you know, uh, played a, a very important role in helping get this program off the ground. Let's also be clear that what you asked about some of the challenges, there was some bureaucratic resistance. Those agencies that have been working on this issue before were unsure what it meant to have to report to someone who was going to be housed at the State Department. Uh, the natural reactions of that, but I think a, a quick realization that this was in the greater good, but just as importantly, it was coming from the President of the United States. And so this was going to get done. And I think the State Department and all the other partner agencies 
uh, really came together and recognized that, that we were looking at an emergency. We needed to act urgently. And we had the direction coming from the very highest levels of the U.S. government. And so it was time to move ahead quickly. So you've really laid out that the HIV crisis was seen as a humanitarian issue, but also an economic development challenge in the countries where HIV was, you know, transmission was quite high, but also as a security challenge. It's a national security challenge, a regional security challenge, and, and really a potential threat for instability in, in many parts of the world. You know, one of the things that, that's really become clear over time is that while HIV, it's a virus, yes, it's a biomedical issue, it's a, it's a challenge for people's health, but people's vulnerability to infection is very much shaped and, and really in many ways, you know, limited their access to treatment and to even to diagnostics. It's often limited by their socioeconomic status and by, you know, ideas about gender, race, and sexuality in, in the different contexts in which people are living. And, you know, we've seen in many cases advocacy groups focus on legal issues and human rights really put, you know, their, their efforts toward encouraging decision makers to recognize that equitable access to healthcare, to diagnostics and, and to treatment is really fundamental to global health security. But, you know, recently we've really also seen this equity agenda come under fire. Uh, there's the Anti-Homosexuality Act that's recently been passed in Uganda criminalizing not just consensual sex between same-sex people, but also advocacy, even, you know, just civil society engagement around the rights of people to advocate for themselves. And, you know, you've worked a great deal on human rights issues as Assistant Secretary of State, also at the McCain Institute and at Freedom House. And so I just wanted to ask you to reflect a little bit on, you know, how you see uh, work on HIV and human rights, you know, coming together. And to what extent do you see legislative steps, you know, around criminalization of advocacy, of work um, in support of human rights, really threatening some of the gains made by PEPFAR over the past 20 years. Sure. And as you and your listeners know, President Bush was also known, in addition to his PEPFAR initiative, for the freedom agenda. And so freedom and human rights were central to his uh, two-term presidency, and they remain central here uh, for the work at the at the Bush Institute. And the approach with PEPFAR was that every person should be entitled to testing and prevention assistance and treatment, uh, regardless of who they were. And so there was no certain groups that were meant to be excluded. Everyone was to be included. And of course, if you try to marginalize or ostracize certain segments of the population, then you run the risk of driving those people underground. They won't seek testing. They won't seek treatment. They are more vulnerable and prone to developing HIV, AIDS, and other problems. And then that will spread to the broader community. So any efforts, I would say, by countries in Africa or anywhere else for that matter, to try to stigmatize certain parts of the population run the risk of actually exacerbating the aid situation in their country rather than uh, dealing with it and trying to isolate it into a small core. A number of these countries have made great progress when it comes to dealing with the HIV AIDS issue. Uganda is one of them. And Uganda is the country, of course, that you referred to that has passed this Anti-Homosexuality Act. Um, Uganda has had a, a, a really strong track record when it comes to dealing with the HIV AIDS pandemic. And yet the concern with the signing by President Museveni on this, um, this act is that it will 
drive those uh, who are in the LGBTQ plus community underground. They'll, they'll be afraid to go seek help, uh, uh, counseling, treatment, testing, you name it. And as a result, I think we've seen a number of people from Uganda who are a part of this community leave the country. The additional challenge they're now facing is a number of them have gone to Kenya and Kenya now is a country that is looking at similar legislation. If I recall, I think it's over 30 countries, maybe 32 countries in Africa that ban same-sex relationships. And so the, the, the main emphasis is to make sure that everyone is eligible for testing and treatment and prevention and not to stigmatize groups because they will be less likely to avail themselves of the opportunities through the program. And so what we want to do is to urge governments and civil society to work together. Remember, PEPFAR is a public-private partnership where uh, governments and the private sector and civil society work so effectively together. We want to encourage um, all of those players to make sure that everyone in their countries can feel safe and feel that they can avail themselves of, of the services that come with PEPFAR. So, you know, a great deal of PEPFAR focus since the beginning has been on sub-Saharan Africa. But HIV has also long been a challenge in Russia and other former Soviet states where transmission is linked in part to injection drug use, um, but also compounded by co-infection with tuberculosis and in many cases, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. Now in Ukraine, over the past 15 years, PEPFAR has you know, really worked very closely uh, with the country and the civil society there to support a number of innovative approaches to really encouraging testing. I mean, injection drug users are another community that is often stigmatized and you know, may not feel comfortable forward for treatment and accessing uh, diagnostics. And there's really been a great deal of focus on, on increasing access to testing and treatment in Ukraine. Even, you know, before the invasion, I mean, certainly, you know, during the period of COVID, we saw, you know, many countries really, you know, face challenges in terms of maintaining HIV services. But the invasion by Russia and the ongoing conflict now over a year, you know, has really made it difficult for care providers to continue serving those vulnerable to infection and, and reaching those who are infected to maintain them on the treatment that, that they've been on. So what do you see? I know you've worked a great deal in, in this part of the world. You were a deputy assistant secretary, you know, focused on, on uh, Russia and, and this region. What do you see as the greatest challenges around maintaining HIV services in the context of the Russia-Ukraine conflict? And, you know, as we, you know, look perhaps hopefully, you know, ahead at a post-conflict Ukraine, you know, where do you see opportunities for the United States to work in partnership with Ukraine to really rebuild HIV and other global health programs? Well, sure. And, and as you indicated, Catherine, Ukraine is a PEPFAR uh, partner. And Ukraine in this region, if I recall, has the second largest segment of the population uh, dealing with the HIV AIDS uh, situation. And Ukraine was making great strides, however, before the invasion. And of course, we have to remember the invasion didn't start just in February of 2022. It started in 2014. And so as a result of that, we saw those who were in the Russian-occupied parts of, of Crimea and Donbass um, not really receiving the treatment and assistance that, that would have been afforded them if they had remained under Ukrainian control. But we held an event, uh, the Bush Institute hosted an event in Washington in February to mark the 20th anniversary of, of PEPFAR. 
And uh, we were very fortunate to have uh, Ambassador Oksana Makarova, uh, Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, join us. And uh, she emphasized how Ukraine has been a partner country since 2007 and received, I think it's over $300 million in assistance through through the PEPFAR program. We also hosted several activists from Ukraine. They were able to leave the country in order to join us for this event because we really wanted to highlight how, despite the absolutely barbaric tactics of the Russians and the bombing and the invasion that we've seen since the full-scale assault last February, Ukrainian activists and the government continue to try to maintain the focus on PEPFAR to provide Ukrainians who need it with the testing and treatment and, and care and prevention that they, they need in order to keep uh, the HIV AIDS situation under control. And it is in quite stark contrast, frankly, to the country that's invading Ukraine, Russia, where it does have the highest part of the population uh, dealing with HIV AIDS of any country in that region. And we see, and forgive me for getting a little off on a tangent, but obviously the Russian leadership doesn't care about human life, whether it's Ukrainian or Russian for that matter. And they don't really care about those who may be dealing with HIV. There is an attitude in, in Russia perpetuated by the government um, that those people probably deserve it. And so there isn't much uh, attention devoted to this issue, just as there wasn't much attention, frankly, devoted to Russia's uh, COVID crisis, where COVID undoubtedly inflicted real losses uh, among the Russian population there. Um, Ukraine also was hit hard by COVID as well. So Ukraine is trying to do two things. It is trying to win the war, and I am cautiously optimistic that it can do so, but it's also trying to make sure that it addresses pre-existing situations such as uh, the AIDS crisis to make sure it does not resurge as a, as a major crisis after the great progress Ukraine has made. So I would say that we PEPFAR has had a major impact in Ukraine. I think the estimates are about 150,000 lives saved as a result of the program and assistance that's been provided. And that has enabled Ukraine actually to sustain a, a fairly thriving uh, population and help the life expectancy uh, from dropping and has enabled Ukraine to have the people it needs in order to, to fight and win. So uh, my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine, including those who are dealing with uh, the HIV AIDS situation as well. No country deserves to be going through what Ukraine is these days. But I salute uh, the Ukrainian people and those who are working on this issue of dealing with HIV AIDS and trying to help their compatriots with, with the health challenges. So people are really responding, not only really continuing to build and develop the, the services focused on HIV, but you know, potentially also using that platform as a way of addressing some of the, the health challenges occasioned by the conflict as well. You know, PEPFAR celebrated its 20th birthday at the celebration that the, the center hosted here in Washington and has really been acknowledged in, in many you know, journals and, and events you know, over the past few months. It's up for another five-year reauthorization uh, later this year before the end of September. 
Now, there's been a great deal of conversation over whether Congress should move forward with, you know, what some people call just kind of a clean reauthorization, really making very few changes except for a date change, or whether it's time to, you know, move from an emergency, the framing the HIV AIDS crisis as an emergency, to something uh, that is perhaps less large, less expensive, and uh, more kind of development-focused. At the same time, there's recognition that during the COVID-19 pandemic, PEPFAR platforms, diagnostic platforms, service delivery platforms, and others really played a very important role in responding to the outbreak. And so there have been efforts, including in PEPFAR's new strategy, to integrate a focus on pandemic preparedness and response into this work on HIV-AIDS looking ahead. So I just wanted to ask you to reflect you know, on this issue around reauthorization. You've written about this you know, recently. You know, what, is your, what is your sense about the relevance of reauthorization at this point in time? And what kind of approach do you think makes most sense as we look ahead to the period to 2030 and beyond? As we started out, this is a program that received huge bipartisan support in 2003 by cameral support. Um, Senators Frist and Daschle played key roles in the in the Senate. They continue to be engaged on this issue. We also recognized uh, former Congresswoman Ileana Ross Leighton and former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for their roles. Uh, many people played key roles. Congressman Chris, Chris Smith has played key roles over the years in getting PEPFAR reauthorized through the House as chair of the subcommittee in the House on Global Health. And so we've seen PEPFAR reauthorized three times already. And uh, occasionally it comes down to the wire. Uh, I think in 2018, it came close to the end of that calendar year that reauthorization was passed. And from the Bush Institute perspective, we strongly support reauthorization of PEPFAR. Um, we think it is arguably the most successful foreign assistance program, uh, at least in terms of global health, that has saved over 25 million lives, has prevented the transmission of HIV from uh, the mothers who may be living with HIV to their newborn. It has provided invaluable treatment and assistance that has enabled these countries to thrive and has raised the life expectancy in these countries. So it's it's an incredibly successful program. And it is in large part due to the generosity of the American taxpayers. We have provided, I think it's over $100 billion over the course of the 20 years. We also contribute to the Global Fund to Fight HIV, AIDS, TB, and malaria. And through the reauthorization process, it's important to note that the U.S. contribution to that global fund is capped at one-third of the contributions. In other words, the way it's set up is we are forcing other countries, or encouraging other countries maybe, um, to make sure that they contribute too, so that this is not a U.S.-only global fund. This is truly a global fund. And you even see some countries that have been recipients of assistance through PEPFAR or through the global fund that are in fact now contributing to the global fund. So we're making this a, a multinational initiative. And to be clear, it is not meant to go on forever. Uh, there is the word emergency in the title of PEPFAR. And the goal is that by 2030, we will see about 95% of those living with HIV know their status, know that they are living with HIV. Awareness is absolutely critical in order to 
uh, try to prevent the spread of it. 95% on treatment and then 95% achieving viral suppression for those living with HIV. So that's the goal by 2030. There was a, a, a bit of a setback during COVID. Some attention and resources were deflected to deal with the COVID pandemic, understandably. This is also, by the way, one of the side benefits of PEPFAR, uh, which is a lot of the infrastructure that came about through PEPFAR assistance, health clinics, testing, diagnostics, all of these things it is a very data-driven process, a program um, that came became very helpful in dealing with the COVID crisis. And Africa, as a result of that, was not paralyzed as some countries were by uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there are huge positive spillover effects as a result of what PEPFAR has done over the years. Um, none of us, I think, wants or expects this program to go on in perpetuity. The hope is, I think, that this reauthorization now up this fall, maybe a, an extension beyond that to get to 2030 or so is what we need. It would be a mistake to uh, not continue the program, to end it now, because that would lead to some real setbacks. There's been this talk, as you know, Catherine, about uh, creating a new bureau within the State Department uh, to dealing with global health security issues, and PEPFAR would be part of this. There, too, we want to make sure that the PEPFAR funding is protected. Um, and so it's important to protect this program, to make sure the ambassador, whoever is in that position, reports directly to the Secretary of State so that that ambassador position has the necessary uh, diplomatic heft, if you will, to deal both interagency within the U.S., but also overseas with other governments. So we recognize that there have been concerns raised. We take them seriously, and yet we want to make sure everyone can get on the same page so that the most successful global health program in history can continue and, and do its job. And so it sounds like, I mean, you know, we've seen over the past 20 years, I mean, from its inception, PEPFAR really has enjoyed a great deal of bipartisan support. If you look at kind of who has been in office over those various reauthorizations, you know, there are a lot of new people who, you know, will need to learn about not only the origins of the program, but really its achievements and the opportunity to have debate and discussion and dialogue about some of these questions related to emergency versus sustainability and the, the equity questions you know, are all issues that we can hope will be addressed and, and discussed and, and debated over, over the next few months and, and really get to some kind of resolution before September. I just want to kind of come back to 20 years ago, you know, PEPFAR was, was really just getting off the ground with a bold vision both to save lives and really deliver treatment in, in a new way to people suffering from a deadly infection. It had been said just a few years before this would be impossible to undertake in some of the, the lowest income countries in the world. And you know, you recently wrote in a blog uh, for the, the George W. Bush Presidential Center that nearly a quarter of adults in some countries were living with HIV, you know, with estimates that more than 100 million people would be infected by 2010. And you know, today, PEPFAR is credited with having saved millions of lives, having prevented millions of new infections, and really importantly, enabling people living with the virus to live well and make plans for the future and for their families. But, you know, as we've discussed, there was some backsliding during the COVID period. Yes, PEPFAR was able to really kind of respond and, and serve as a platform for outbreak response. And we saw communities come together when health clinics were closed, coming together to deliver 
uh, drugs themselves to to their community members and really kind of taking it upon themselves to ensure continuity of services. And so we've really seen a great deal of civil society mobilization in partnership with, with the private sector and with governments. You know, but we know that in addition to the challenges around service delivery, we're really in a period with considerable fiscal constraints, both at the national level, we're looking at, you know, asking countries to provide more domestic uh, resources for, for domestic HIV programs, but also in terms of the donor community as well. And so, you know, just thinking about the, the role of, of U.S. support and engagement with the Global Fund and, you know, really looking ahead to replenishments and, and the next 20 years, do you think, you know, we'll still you know, be able to, to count on that, that international collaboration and engagement, you know, over, over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years? We've got pandemic funds and Gavi and you know, many other global health imperatives that are all kind of clamoring for attention. What do you think it will take to sustain the progress and commitments around HIV and uh, really kind of finish the job? Sure. Well, first, uh, you had mentioned about the dropping life expectancies in some of these countries. And, and we had recognized President Mohai, of, uh, former president of Botswana, in April here. His daughter accepted on his behalf. And if I recall right, I think the life expectancy in Botswana had dropped 37 years of age at the height of the AIDS pandemic. Botswana has made great strides, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to recognize President Mohai, but also many other leaders and civil society activists in Africa, because there has been buy-in from uh, Africans in this process. It was not presented as something being imposed on them. It was viewed as a partnership with the United States and then other countries that got involved through the Global Fund. And I think uh, making that clear has been critically important to its success. I mentioned earlier the role of faith-based organizations. That has been, I think, a really important part of the success of PEPFAR on the African continent. And so the continuation of their role will remain important. I think in what we want to do is to reach those goals by 2030. So you asked me what, what would it look like in 20 years? I hope PEPFAR will be talking about is something uh, in the past that it won't be needed anymore. They'll still need to maintain vigilance on this. There will be other health issues that we'll have to work on. But again, the, the beauty of what PEPFAR has done is provided a lot of the infrastructure and sustainability for these countries to deal with other global health crises. We already talked about the COVID-19 pandemic, building local capacity, transparency, really emphasizing the data-driven uh, nature of, of the program so that there is accountability, so that we can explain where it's working most effectively, where it's not working, and then uh, shift resources accordingly if, if need be. Um, emphasizing the uh, multilateral, multinational collaboration that's been at the center of dealing with the HIV AIDS pandemic through PEPFAR and through the Global Fund and making sure that all those who need it, whoever they might be, whatever they might be, have uh, access to the uh, prevention and testing and treatment that is available through these programs. We, the United States, have been behind and a leader in a program that I mentioned before and has saved over 25 million lives that naturally is going to engender goodwill uh, toward the United States. And um, I think we, what we could do over the next few years 
is to try to raise awareness about the good that we have done, the contributions we have made to saving lives, to contributing to stability, prosperity on the African continent and elsewhere where PEPFAR is active. You contrast that to the approach that the Chinese take toward the African continent, the approach that the Russians take, particularly through the murderous Wagner mercenary outfit that is responsible for many deaths in in the Central African Republic, Mali, Libya, you name it, while we're providing life-saving assistance. And I think we could do, we all could do a better job of raising awareness, both overseas on what we're doing, but here to the American people. Well, David Kramer, Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. You really traced the kind of historical evolution of of PEPFAR as a a vision for an emergency response to to an international crisis and really the focus both on the, really on the humanitarian agenda, the economic development and and linkages to to national security as well. And you've really pointed out so many of the continued opportunities for international cooperation and partnership with civil society, with the private sector, and with government at the national and subnational levels to really, you know, continue to empower society to address HIV AIDS, but, you know, really look at the broader implications for, for global health security at large. So thank you very much for joining me today, and good luck to you and the Institute in, in your work in these areas in the year ahead. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. I really appreciate it. And again, admire your work and work of CSIS and so many others in this field. It's a real partnership, so I'm grateful for this chance. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.